Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Hey guys, I just want to let you know about an amazing company, an amazing product that we use in our home every day. The company is Ballish Woodwork. It is owned by my friend Kurt Ballish. He makes homemade woodworks. And for my wife, which you know I love and adore, last Mother's Day, I got her a homemade cutting board made by Kurt and is the only cutting board that we will use in our home. So if you guys love homemade woodwork and you would love to make a piece maybe for your wife, maybe a chessboard, maybe something special for your home, Definitely check out BalishWoodworks.com. Tell them that Richard and Vertical Momentum sent you guys. Have an amazing day. Remember, Vertical Momentum, the only way to go is but up. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as The Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be a very touching uh interview an episode because it's something that's near and dear to my heart as you guys know i'm a recovering addict with over 33 years clean and sober and i was an, an addict as a child so this is definitely going to touch my heart and is hopefully it's going to touch yours and we're and we're going to get some good information out to help save some lives but first i want to thank our sponsors curtis Ball- kurt ballish of ballish woodworks if you guys love homemade woodworks made by veterans hands definitely check him out at ballishwoodworks.com he does amazing work and he's also helping save veterans lives so guys this is going to be a great episode if you have children you're going to want to listen to this and get a pen and paper out because you're going to want to get this book um, and my friend's book is truly touching and truly inspirational and you can learn a lot my friend richard what's up my brother well hello there thank you so much for inviting and congratulations on uh, on all of your hard work and your efforts to uh, maintain your sobriety over over all these years. That's quite an accomplishment. Well, thank you. You know, and my mother was an was an active addict, and um, after I got sober, she got sober too. So we're both we're both clean, and she's clean over uh, twenty seven years. So God, wow. so God is great. You know. That's great. Congratulations to her as well. Yeah. So um, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Doing great. I thank you so much for inviting me to uh, to talk to you and to your audience about this uh, important uh, issue of adolescent uh, substance abuse. And, you know, it, it in this time and age, you know, like a lot, I had a gentleman on my show last week and he was telling me some statistics that on average, 5,000 children from the ages of 8 to 18 attempt suicide every day. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, those numbers are only growing. And, you know, so this is a definite topic that needs to be talked about. But first, like, let, let us know a little bit about you, where you were from, and how was your home growing up? Uh, so well, what- I'm originally from Illinois. 
in Rockford, Illinois, which is about 90 miles northwest of Chicago. Uh, my father uh, passed away when I was nine years old, so I was raised by my mother. Um, went on to um, uh, actually dropped out of high school um, and uh, went over and enrolled in a community college uh, and um, went through, finished my uh, junior college career, went on to uh, Western Illinois University and then on to the University of Illinois. Um, I started out working in the field of education. I worked uh, for the uh, state of Illinois in education for well over 30 years, around 30 some years. And then I transitioned over into mental health and substance abuse. And I, I actually started working at a mental health crisis center in central Illinois. And we would take in people from the emer hospital emergency rooms that a very difficult time. They were having a, a, a mental health crisis. But I noticed a lot of them also had a substance abuse crisis in addition to what they were struggling with with their mental health. So I went back to the University of Illinois and received a, a degree in um, what is basically addiction counseling. I continued to work at the crisis center for a number of years until I was offered a job uh, in Houston, Texas at uh, Menninger Clinic. Menninger is a large um, psychiatric hospital that serves adults and adolescents from around the world. I was hired to be an addictions counselor for adolescents and adults. I spent around uh, 11 years working at Menninger uh, as an addictions counselor. And then I retired from that. And shortly after I retired, I wrote this book for parents. I wanted to create a resource for parents that would give them the information that I think they would find helpful about adolescent substance abuse. So I packed all of that into about 100 pages because I know that parents don't have a lot of time to read volumes of information. So I wanted to give them the on adolescent substance abuse so that they would feel more empowered and more knowledgeable about this subject and feel better prepared to deal with it in the event that they're in a situation where they discover their child is using a substance uh, like alcohol or marijuana. Now, you know, your book is it's a very easy read. Um, even for somebody like me, that's a low-tech redneck. It's very easy to, to absorb. Um, it's very easy. It's a very easy read. And, uh, you know, a lot of people um, coming from the background that I come from, I, it really hit home a lot. But what was it? Who was the person that um, gave you that heart of service, able to want to help others? Oh, I think uh, it, it, it came probably from... Um... Uh, just my experience in meeting so many people early on that were struggling with substance abuse, whether they were teenagers uh, who were going through some kind of difficult times in their life and had turned to substances to medicate whatever they're dealing with, or it might have been so many adults that I worked with who's, 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 who's seen how drugs can uh, seriously affect their lives and their families and, and how much pain and suffering that they and their families were going through. That really motivated me to to want to work harder, to learn more, and to reach out and, and help people, whether they're adolescents or adults. So now, did you ever have any problems with any addictions? Um, the substance that, that, that I abused the most 
was alcohol. And, uh, and that was over a, uh, a, a fairly brief period of time when I was working uh, in, in Illinois. Uh, part of my responsibilities was to be a, a lobbyist. Um, and, uh, and, and, and during those times when I was working as a lobbyist and the legislature was in session, there were many nights when we'd go out and we would drink alcohol with uh, lobbyists and legislators. And, and uh, I, I, I had more than my fair share of alcohol. Uh, but once I moved away from that occupation, that sort of that sort of phase in my life, uh, fortunately, uh, you know, was significantly curtailed. And, you know, one thing I love that that you talk about is, you know, usually uh, addiction and mental health issues are brother and sister. You know, they go, they usually go hand in hand, you know, like, um, of course, I'm in the military and then, you know, I was in the military. And usually um, I found like I'm not a professional. I'm only a ninth grade dropout, so I'm no professional whatsoever. But I found from people that I interviewed that, you know, when an adult acts out, it's usually because something that happened between the ages of three and 13. And then if you add alcohol to the mix and you add war to the mix, sometimes you have the perfect storm. So talk to us about how um, addiction and mental health walk hand in hand. Many times, not all times, but many yeah. times um, when when we dig belie- but below the surface, we look beyond just the alcohol or the drug use, we, we, we find that there is an underlying mental health issue that that person has turned to a substance to medicate. Many of the teenagers that I worked with, for example, when I was at Menninger Clinic, they were smoking a lot of marijuana. They were smoking multiple times a day. And when I would ask them to help me understand why they were smoking so much marijuana, the number one answer that came back was, it helps me with my anxiety. So that's an example of how in many, many cases, an adult or an adolescent will be struggling with an intolerable feeling or an intolerable emotion or thought or memory. And and we don't like having intolerable things. So we seek relief from those intolerable feelings. And many times the relief comes through a substance that we have found. Maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's marijuana. Uh, for many adults, it may be more hardcore drugs, uh, but, but, but we're going to seek that relief from that underlying mental health issue, whether it's anxiety, uh, it might be depression, it could be post-traumatic stress disorder, it could be um, any number of person personality disorders but 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 if there is that underlying issue it's very important that we just don't treat the drug abuse or the alcohol abuse that needs treatment but what also needs treatment is the underlying issue for these teenagers if i were just to treat the marijuana and ignore the anxiety uh, chances of them staying away from marijuana use for any extended period of time was was very very low so you have to treat both those issues issues. And in many cases, many cases, when we dig below the surface, we're able to uncover some type of psychological or mental health issue that is bothering that person. 
And I, and I, you know, and I, and I totally agree about that. Now, you know, like I said, this conversation is like two friends just having a cup of coffee. So it's going to go so many different uh, directions. Um, Now with the way America's going now with them making CBD, uh, medical marijuana, a, uh, to where people eventually will be able to just get it at all times. Do you see, because I believe, I mean, it's only my opinion as an addict that I find that it's, it is a gateway. Um, what are your opinions on the way I see them dumbing down America? And also I see a lot more people going to be struggling with addiction in the future because of it. What are you seeing as a professional? Well, certainly as, as for example, with marijuana, as it becomes more and more legal for adults and becomes more acceptable for adults, uh, we may see more and more problems begin to surface. Now, that doesn't mean that marijuana is, is, is going to negatively affect every single person who uses it. I'm sure many people can use marijuana and they go about their daily lives and their businesses and their jobs and, and everything, you know, is fine. But for certain people, um, you know, marijuana is like lighting a fuse in their brain. Anybody who has had a history of psychosis. Anybody who has a history, even a family history of schizophrenia, you know, using marijuana is like playing Russian roulette with your brain. I don't know when the gun's going to go off, but I'm pretty sure it's going to go off and push you back into some type of psychotic experience. Um, but for an awful lot of people who use marijuana, um, you know, they don't they don't experience negative effects. Um, I, I do look at it differently differently for adolescents. And the reason is because the adolescent brain, unlike the adult brain, is in the process of developing. Our brains don't get fully developed until we're around age 24 or 25. So that adolescent brain is in the process of developing and maturing and growing those circuits and that formation that, that, that will be so critical uh, in, in their adult years. And when you start to introduce a substance, uh, whether it's marijuana, alcohol, any of the illicit drugs into an adolescent developing brain, you run the risk of doing some severe damage. For example, the, the kids that I worked with, the adolescents that I worked with who were using a lot of marijuana, these were very bright young men and women. Their IQs were above average to superior, but they were smoking a lot of marijuana. And when the psychological test came back on those kids, what I found was that the processing speed of their brain, how well their brain was just moving along, was below average. And their short-term memory was impaired. And their motivation was, was, was not very good. So that's an example of how some of these substances can interact within the developing adolescent brain and produce some negative consequences. So when it comes to adolescence, um, there, are some, there are some important differences. When, when we look at the difference between a, a adult addiction and adolescent addiction, I think there's two big differences. 
the first difference is the brain development that I just went through. The adolescent brain is not fully developed. The adult brain is. So that's the first difference. The second difference is in consequences. Adults who have been captured by drugs, who are addicted to drugs, have often faced catastrophic consequences as a result of their addiction. These are not small consequences. These are catastrophic consequences. They might have lost their might have lost their marriage. They might have might have been incarcerated. These are catastrophic consequences that adults who are addicted uh, often face. Adolescents, on the other hand, they face very few consequences. Their biggest consequence is their parents yelling at them or perhaps maybe imposing some type of restriction or grounding them, but nowhere near the catastrophic consequences that an adult addict will, will very often face in their life. So, you know, now we'll talk a little bit about, you know, because I, I wrote a book out and it's been out a while. And and the last two chapters that I wrote a, a book about, you know, the last two chapters were, you know, what addiction really looks like and not what you think it looks like. Yeah. You know, what depression looks like and not what you think it looks like. So for being a professional, um, talk to us about what childhood addiction looks like. Because sometimes, you know, we can't see the forest through the trees. We can't. Um, you know, so many times, um, Richard, I would, I would sit across from a family and I would, after having spent quite a bit of time with their child and doing the assessments and the tests and getting the history, I would sit across from the family and I would go through their child's history of using a substance. I would tell them the substances that have been used, how often their child had been using, how much they had been using, and so on. And, and I'd give them the diagnosis, you know, sub, your, your child, this is a substance use disorder that's either mild, moderate, or severe, as the case was. And when I finished, they would look across at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they might say, well, I sort of thought something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. So, you know, many times parents are, and these are good parents. These were, these were good parents. They missed the warning signs because nobody told them what to look for. Nobody ever told them, this is the, these are things that you should be looking for. Um, so I think that the adolescent population, kids are very smart. They're very bright. They know how to fly under the radar. And that allows them to get by with using some of these substances that their parents are just completely shocked and surprised when they find out about it. So what are some of the, the signs that, a, you know, because I have a 19-year-old, a I have a 16-year-old, and I have a nine-year-old. So I'm interested in this, you know, because being an addict, I'm used to seeing adult addicts. I'm not used to looking for signs for children with dealing with addiction issues. So, right. what, um, I mean, this is such an important issue that 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 in my book I have warning signs for a child that might be using marijuana. I have warning signs for a child that might be drinking alcohol. I have warning signs for a child that might be developing an eating disorder or might be self-harming themselves because in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, a child will be developing an eating disorder or they're self-harming themselves in a to using a substance like marijuana or alcohol. So those warning signs are, are listed in my book. 
as a general rule, what I recommend to parents is pay attention to the changes that you see in your child. You know your child better than anyone. Pay attention to the changes that you see. Don't assume that some of these behaviors that you're seeing are just normal adolescent acting out behaviors. They may very well be that, but they also may be an indication that your child is struggling with something below the surface. So pay attention to these warning signs. Um, some examples would be a child whose grades are starting to decline. A child who used to be very social and outgoing now becomes very quiet, very quiet and reserved and isolating. A child who used to participate in sports no longer shows any interest in sports. A child who used to introduce you to their friends. You knew who their friends were. You might have even known who their family members were. Now becomes very secretive of who their friends are. So these are some examples of some changes that you see. Now, if these changes go on for a, a few days, a short period of time, probably not not the, nothing to be concerned about. But if these changes tend to linger over a period of time, and then you start to see more and more of these changes, maybe it started out as one or two, now it's three or four, and you're starting to longer and there's more of them, then I think it's time for you to be concerned and move to the next level, which is um, to, to get some assessments done that I've recommended in my book so that you can get a comprehensive picture of what's child and if needed, uh, a diagnosis and, and a plan for, for treatment. Now, um, like for me, when I, I had my first drink at 12, and I was a full-blown alcoholic by the age of 13. And my parents never knew that I would, I mean, I, they probably knew, but, um, you know, I would take a little bit of liquor out of their, out of their drinks and add water, yeah. and, you know, and, and I'm sure so many people have done that. Oh yeah, I, I had a, I had a kid that, that that I was treating when I was at Menninger who did exactly that. He, he would go to the, uh, to the family liquor cabinet and he would look for either vodka or gin because it's clear. And he would take, he wouldn't take it all. He's smart. He wouldn't take it all. He'd take what he wanted and, and then he would replace it with water. And it took the family quite a while to catch on to that little guy. Yeah. And like, I don't think they ever knew, but you know, after that I was full blown. So what do you do? You know, because like I said, I grew up in active addiction with my parents, with my mother. Yeah. So then what is a child to do is, if you know they see their their parents drinking and getting high, and you can't just say to your kids, uh, "Well, don't do this because I'm an adult." It doesn't it doesn't work <laughs> that way. You know, I mean, children go. I mean, because eventually, if if it gets bad enough, either a teacher or somebody in school is gonna you know let them know that they have to get help. So how does how does the a kid like that get help if they're in an active addiction household. Well, that's really tough. Uh, that's that's tough because unfortunately, the parents, because of their own addiction, are unable or unwilling to see what's going on with their child. Um, and, and and these child these children are taking their cues from what they see in in their parents. You know, sometimes I'm asked the question, well. Do you think it's okay if I tell my child, you can drink at home, 
where I can supervise it, but I don't want you drinking outside of the house as a teenager. And my response is, well, here's what the research shows. The research shows that in families where parents say that to their kids, you can drink at home, but you can't drink outside of home. When those kids leave the home, the research shows they end up drinking even more than what kids uh, came from families where uh, drinking was prohibited in the home and outside the home. So these kids may start drinking at home under the supervision of their parents, or they think they're supervising them. Uh, but when they go on and they leave the house or they go on to college or wherever they go, uh, maybe to the workplace, they end up drinking even more. So that's not a good idea for parents to encourage any type of drinking. But if you have, if you have a, a, a family situation where there's a lot of alcohol being consumed at home uh, to the point where um, you know, people are getting intoxicated, that is sending a message to that kid that uh, maybe alcohol is not that bad a thing. Yeah, you know, and like I said, my family, I grew up in an Italian family, so, you know, everybody was always drinking Sambuca, always having wine. So it's just like, all right, you know, it's just something that we did. And you really don't realize until, wait a minute, you know, everybody else went to sleep and I'm still sitting here drinking wine and yeah. Sambuca. You know, you're <laughs> kind of like, this is not normal. You know? <laughs> yeah, eventually, I guess you do figure out that, 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 that there's something not right here. It's not normal. But but for, for, for a long period of time, you might think that is normal because that's all you see. That's what you see your family doing. That's what they do all the time. This almost seems normal until it gets out of control. And then it's not normal. Now, I got so I went to my first AA meeting at the age of 20 because it was either that or go to do five years in prison. So I chose to go to a meeting. But um yeah, it like I was supposed to hit ninety meetings in ninety days. Yeah, it's something like three hundred in a row, and I haven't had a drink since. But unfortunately, going to those meetings, I had to realize that you know I had to get away from people, places, and things. So, what does a kid do? Okay, he goes, she's talking to you, or goes to a rehab, and now he can't go back to the people that he used to hang out with. And he starts getting real lonely. Yeah. What is that like? And talk to us about that. That's an excellent point, Richard, because uh, sometimes when, when I would be talking to these teenagers and, and, and we would talk about, you know, stopping their use of marijuana, for example, or alcohol or whatever they were using, they would look at me and they would say, well, you know, you're asking me to give up all my friends. Uh, you know, all my friends smoke marijuana and, and you're saying that I'm going to have to give them up. I, I won't have any friends left. And my response to them was, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm asking you to do is to recognize that there are two, group, two different groups of friends. There are friends who are only interested in you smoking with them. They don't really care about you. They care about you smoking with them. And then there's another group of friends who really do care about you as a person. Now, they may be smoking marijuana, but they also care about you as a person. So when you tell them, if you make the decision that you no longer want to smoke marijuana or you no longer want to 
whatever it is you're using, there will be a group of friends who will respect that because they respect you and they respect your decision to no longer drink alcohol or no longer drink marijuana. They may continue to smoke, but they're going to respect your decision to stop. And they're not going to try and lure you into a relapse. Those are the kinds of friends you need to keep. Those are the kinds of friends you need to surround yourself with. The kind of friends that will respect your decision and support your decision and help you maintain your sobriety. The other group of friends that are just interested in smoking marijuana and try to lure you in, those are the ones you need to get out of your lifestyle. So no, I'm not asking you to give up all your friends. I'm asking you to look at the, of the, of the character of your friends and determine which ones are truly interested in you as a person and in your best interest and respect your decision to quit and those that don't really care about you and will probably try to get you to relapse. I love it. And I love the passion that I hear in your voice. Um, I, I can hear that you really care. Now, two things that drive me crazy with in recovery. Um, now, like I said, I've been now clean 33 years. And I, I, w- I went when I when I got clean and I was 20 years old and I'm sitting in a dark basement drinking stale coffee and cookies that are still <laughs> with a bunch of old guys. That you know, they just said, you know, sit down, shut up, and just listen. And nowadays, I see two things that drive me a little bit crazy because now I'm that old guy. Um, <laughs> is that you know, people that say you know, relapse is part of recovery, and I've seen a lot of people that have went out and never came back, yeah. um, and then you know, and they were dead the next day. And then also I see these commercials on TV. Oh, you could just fly out to Pasadena, California and get massages and sit in chairs and overlooking the ocean. And they don't talk about you know, what, what about all the inner work that you have to do to, you know, it's easy to get clean. It's harder to stay clean. So talk to, talk to us about those two things about, you know, relapse does not have to be part of recovery. And when you do get clean, it's hard work. It's not you're not going to be sitting, getting a massage, getting fanned and drinking drinks out of out of a uh, coconut. Yeah. And you can say the same thing for uh, for treatment, too. It's not going off to a fan for a month or two, you know, and, and being waited on and served and relaxing. This is not a retreat. You know, uh, this is hard work. Uh, this is this is work that in many cases um, is, is not going to be done in, in, in a few weeks. You know, these 30 day treatment programs driven by insurance uh, for some people. Yeah, that may, it might work for, for a large majority of people who are severely addicted. No, the research shows that the best outcomes are, are after three months of treatment after three months of treatment. Um, So treatment is hard work. You know that because you've done the hard work yourself and now you've gotten all these years of sobriety. You put a lot of effort into not just the treatment part of it, but the hard work that comes from the recovery and, and, the, and the maintenance stage of, of recovery as well. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, there's a lot of hard work put into treatment, and there's even more hard work put into maintaining sobriety. Now, for some people, um, they will relapse, okay? But the way that I look at relapse, 
we don't ever like to see anybody relapse. Nobody, nobody really wants to go through that pain. But like any other disease, uh, relapse happens. But how you look at that relapse makes a big difference. Relapse is not necessarily a failure. It's not a failure of the individual. When people talk to me about relapse, the most important thing to me is, what did you learn from your relapse? Tell me what you learned from it. Because if you didn't learn anything from that relapse, you're probably going to go through this again. But if you can tell me some things that you learned about yourself and your environment and your triggers as a result of that relapse, the chances of you relapsing are probably a lot less. So that relapse and see if you can turn it into a learning experience. Because if you can't turn it into a learning experience, you're probably going to relapse again. But if you can turn it into a learning experience, then your chances of relapsing again are substantially less than what they might have been. You know, and one thing, you know, for me, uh, when I was first, when I first got sober, like I said, I was 20 years old. And one of the old guys turned to me and he said, you know what? If you stay out of the barbershop, you're probably not going to get a haircut. So, you know, so pretty much try to stay away from people, places and things, you know, but like even after being sober for so long, we still have to, you know, maintain it and be aware. Like when me and my wife, we go out for dinner anywhere, even if I order a diet soda, she still has to taste everything. Just so I know that, I, you know, I'm, I'm not taking anything in or like when she makes cookies at home. She doesn't make, she has to buy the um, alcohol-free vanilla extract, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Even though people are like, well, you, but you got 33 years and yeah, but I can go back to day one so easy. So talk to us about, you know, people, places and things. And then also, you know, after you get clean for 90 days, okay, now what? Yeah. You know? Yeah, those people, places, and things, those triggers that 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 we try to help people with uh, while they're in treatment and, and even after treatment are so important because uh, we do examine those things that trigger us. Um, and, and they can be exactly as, as you said, Richard. They can be people. They can be places. They can be things. And, and a lot of times, these triggers just drop out of the sky. You know, they, they, they tend to catch the person off guard. They don't, they don't give you an advance warning. They don't say, you know, I'm going to hit you in 30 minutes. Or I'm going to hit you tomorrow. No, these things drop out of the sky instantaneously. And, and, and before we know it, you know, they, they've caught the person and, and, and they're unaware of it and, and they're just caught off guard and, and, and they've relapsed. It, it can happen very, very quickly. Um, so in treatment, we try to help people identify those, those people, those places, those things, those triggers to, 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 to know what they are, to, to feel better prepared to deal with them. Um, but that's just the beginning of the process. Um, then the hard work comes after treatment when you actually put all of that learning and all of that knowledge into practice every single minute of every single day. Eventually, after 
a period of time, it does get easier. But I think many people are very vulnerable within those first, say, six months of coming out of treatment, um, you know, because they're, they're, they're thrown back out into the world and, 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 and they have to deal with all of these issues. And that's why having a good support system after treatment and beyond treatment is so important to have that support system, whether it's AA or NA or any other type of support group uh, that, that can be there for you is build up that community of support because this is going to be a difficult period of time as you come out of treatment um, and, 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 and you're going to need the support to carry you forward. You know, and I love that you now because, you know, they say that, you know, that first 90 days, uh, the first year, you know, you're on that pink cloud, um, you know, they tell you not not to get into a relationship for the first year because you're just building a relationship with yourself. And a lot of people go to the programs and they call them 13 steppers. Uh, you know, they they hook up with all the, these other people in rehab and then they just they both go down to tubes together. Yeah. So, you know, talk to us about, you know, like you said, that first year, you know, building a relationship with yourself. But unfortunately, when you start getting clean and start working on yourself, you know, you become self-aware. But then you also start seeing other people's problems. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, you're yelling at you know, like your parents. Like, say, if your parents are addicts and now I'm clean and I'm watching them getting stoned and getting drunk, you know, that it can lead to a lot of resentment. For people around you, you know, because they're they're doing the stuff that you used to do, and you're trying to stay sober, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, and you need to keep the focus on yourself. You need to you need to really keep the focus and all of the effort on on your own sobriety, and and and, and not let anyone or anything try to <clears throat> excuse me try to sidetrack you from that, because that first year, and probably especially that first few months. A vulnerable time for somebody in recovery. Uh, it, it, it is a very, very difficult time because you no longer have the support system of being in a treatment program. Uh, you no longer have the support of perhaps, you know, your therapist or your counselors and everybody who was involved in your treatment when you were in a treatment program. And now you're out there pretty much on your own. But you do have a community in AA and NA that can be there for for you if if you take advantage of it um, and you definitely need to get involved in that type of uh, of activity initially you probably need to be going to a meeting multiple times a week as you come out of treatment and then as you as you progress forward um, you know you, you you may attend meetings maybe less often but that is a very important support group um, in terms of relationships yes you know I recommend that you don't have any intimate relationships for a, for at least a year doesn't mean you can't have friends doesn't mean you can't have you know, uh, relationships with other people. You want to build a support system for your sobriety. You want to surround yourself with people who care about you, who respect your your sobriety. So you do want to have relationships. But you, what you want to stay away from, are intimate, sexual type of relationships because those can those can detract you real quick. All right. So now, because I love you know ending on a high note. Um, you don't have to go into any names because we know about anonymity, but talk to us some about, 
some of the most successful kids that you've had that have been through literally the crap and have come out on the other end as better people and eventually husbands, fathers, business people. Talk yeah. to us about some of your successes. I had a young lady uh, who, who came into the adolescent treatment program um, and um, she had a history of using substances. Uh, she was using marijuana. I think she was also drinking alcohol. She also had a history of uh, self-injury. She was cutting on herself. And she was in our treatment program for uh, quite, a, quite a period of time. And then we referred her on to a, a residential treatment program where she spent well over six months, I think, in that treatment program. She did rather well with us. Uh, I was able to, uh, to make some progress with her on both the substances and the self-injuring that she was doing. Uh, there was a lot of underlying psychiatric issues that were involved that the psychiatrist and the psychologist had uncovered and were dealing with. I was just dealing with the substances, but they were dealing with these other issues. So it was a very complicated case. She went off to treatment uh, at a residential treatment program that we had recommended. And uh, I heard from a couple of years later when uh, she had written me an email. She was in college. Uh, she had gotten uh, admitted to a college. She was doing rather well. She had a boyfriend. Um, I heard from her sometime later after she had graduated from college. So it was a remarkable turn turn of, of events for her as a result of the work that she did, both with us and, and then her willingness to go on to residential treatment. And, and, that, and that really is my message. My message to parents when I wrote this book is intended to be a message of hope. We know that um, the, our brains have a tremendous capacity to heal themselves. So my message to parents and to everyone who is uh, addicted, whether it's an adolescent or an adult, is you can recover. There are programs out there. There are treatment options out there. There is hope out there. And you can turn your life around. And parents, um, you need to get support for yourself as well. That's the other message I have. We often focus on the child, but we don't recognize that the parents many times are going through their own crisis. So everybody needs support and everybody needs help. But regardless of whether you're an adolescent or an adult, if you can, if you can get the help that you deserve and that you need, recovery is possible. And Richard, I think you're a prime example of how recovery and healing can take place. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, now I believe that my mess is my message. So I try to, you know, help as many people I can. Uh, now I wrote a book and I put it out on Amazon and a lot of people think, you know, as soon as you write a book, you put it out, it goes out and all of a sudden you're rich and famous <laughs> and they don't realize you, know, just you write a book. Uh, doesn't mean that's when the work just begins. And yeah. then you have to start promoting it and, you know, getting into people's hands. Yes. What was it like writing your book? And, you know, what kind of reactions have you got from people that have read the book? 
Um, well, writing the book took quite a while because I had to do the research. I had to find the resources, went through several stages of, of, of rewriting and editing. And, and, and one of the challenges was to take this information and, and, and boil it down to about 100 pages to make sure that it was very manageable reading for parents because I know parents are busy. They don't have time to read volumes of information, but to pack it into around 100 pages and make sure that I was addressing the major issues, you know, a, a review of street drugs that are out there. So parents became familiar with the drugs that are out there. They know about alcohol, they know mar about marijuana, but they might not know some of these other street drugs that are out there. I wanted to give them a little bit of education about how drugs work in the brain and the importance of, of protecting their child's developing brain. I wanted to let them know what assessments they need to get if they think their child's using a substance. Certainly you need an addictions assessment, but there's other assessments that you need. So I put a chapter in on that. I also put a chapter in on how do you recognize an, an evidence-based program? If your child needs treatment, what's what kind of programs are out there? And how do you know what a good program is? And what questions should you ask a program? And then there's resources in there. So that took a while to put all that together. And then it went through a went through editing and publication. Now that it's out there, most of my time is spent uh, reaching out to people like yourself uh, that are willing to help me try to get this word out. Um, my, my thought from the very beginning was I'm not writing this book to become rich because that's not going to happen. Like you said, we don't become rich by writing a book. Uh, I'm not trying to make a lot of money, but what I'm trying to do is I'm really trying to help people. And if, if the result of this book, if the only result of this book is that it saves one kid's life, then it's been worth it. I love it. So now last two questions that I have. Okay. Um, how do we find your book? How do we find you and how can people get in touch with you if they have questions, if they're looking at their kids and be like, you know what? Something ain't right. Because yeah. a lot of parents, you know, we're, we're in tune with our kids. Some of us yeah. aren't, but some of us are. And you could just tell sometimes when a kid is hurting, you yeah. know, sometimes it, it can go both ways. You can have a kid, you know, after a traumatic issue, you know, if they were really quiet before, all of a sudden they become really outspoken. Or somebody, if they were really outspoken at one time, they become really, um, you know, in, withdrawn. So how do we find you? How can we get in touch with you? How can we buy your book? The book is available on Amazon. The title is The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescence. So it's available on Amazon. It's available in Kindle format for people who like to read a Kindle uh, on their Kindle. It's also available in, in paperback. Um, the easiest way to, to get to it, if you don't want to go to Amazon and put in, you know, the addicted child, uh, a parent's guide to adolescent substance abuse, is to go to the book's website. The book's website is www.helptheaddictedchild.com. Helptheaddictedchild.com. When you get to the website, you'll be able to, to see endorsements for the book. You can read some reviews. You can read a sample chapter. There'll be a link that will take you directly to Amazon where you can purchase the book. Um, and there will be a contact up at the top, I believe it is, where you can send me a message, send me a note, ask me a question. Uh, 
and I'll be able to uh, to get back to you. So probably the easiest way is to go to helptheaddictedchild.com, order the book as a Kindle or a paperback, and then uh, send me a message if you do read it and let me know what you thought about it. Okay, I love it. Now, last question, I, you know, I ask a thousand people, I get a thousand different answers. <laughs> you know, we live in a crazy world, you know, we're in a post COVID world. Yeah, in New Jersey, we're going back on lockdown. Um, and a lot of parents here lost their jobs. So some of them are driving Uber, uh, drive, you know, DoorDash, working for Amazon, anything they can do to put food on a table. So if I ask the average parent, to do something in seven days, you're never going to get to it. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely to do it. So if there's somebody listening to this right now that has a child that they're concerned with, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to get some help? In the next 24 hours, they need to buy the book and they need to read the book. It won't take them very long. They probably can read it very quickly going to find in that book is a chapter on assessments. And if they're concerned about their child, that chapter will tell them who, what kind of assessments they need to get done so that they can get professionals to give them a comprehensive review of their child, give them a diagnosis if it's applicable, and tell them what the next steps are. So if you buy the book for any reason, buy it to learn what those assessments are because you need to know what kind of comprehensive assessments need to be done to, to identify what's going on. I love it, brother. Thank you so much for hopping on today. Uh, like I said, this is a very near and dear subject to my heart, obviously. And just to know that, you know, uh, we're losing up to 70,000 people a year to opioid overdoses, you know, yes. counting children, they're counting adults. So I want to thank you for everything you do, the work you're putting in. And I truly appreciate you. I want to thank Kurt Ballish of Ballish Woodworks for without you the show would not be possible so if you guys love heart love woodworking check out ballishwoodworks.com richard brother thank you so much um this will go out next season so i just want to say thank you for taking the time and hanging out with me today Thank you, Richard. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate you, uh, you know, sharing your own story, which I think will be very helpful to everybody who listens. And thank you for helping me to reach out to people about this uh, very important topic of adolescent substance abuse. You've done a great job. Thank you so much for helping me. And if there's any way I can help, uh, please let me know. I'm all about it. I'm available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As much as you can, recommend people read that book and get that information. Even if their child is five, six, seven, or eight years old, it's better that they be prepared. Knowledge is power. I would rather for parents have the knowledge and never have to use it, hopefully, but have it in case they do. Amen, brother. Have an amazing week. You too. Thank you, Richard. Hey, guys. If you're enjoying our show if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new t-shirt line that's coming out. Hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand, 
coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass kicking coffee, and and it will it will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you are interested, go to www.richardkaufman.net. Check us out. Leave us a note. Tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built. So if you guys want to, our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission which is to save lives. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.